Hey everyone, I'm Jason Rosewell. Over there is Mark Denton, who you all know as Skyhawk Heavy, and that makes this Flightcast, the one and only Infinite Flight podcast. We would love to see you on Facebook and Twitter, so if you haven't already, hop over to facebook.com slash flightcastaudio or on Twitter at flightcastaudio and hit the like and or follow button. Hey, Mark. Hey, buddy. What's going on? Oh, man, not much. You know. Just living you know the me? dream? Just trying to stay fat and fine. All right. Mark, what new resources are available to Infinite Flight pilots since we last chatted? Any new videos to share? Um, yeah, the have, uh, we have the newly revised uh, YouTube channel, um, which is the official Infinite Flight uh, YouTube channel. So you can definitely go to YouTube and type in Infinite Flight. Which is beautiful looking, I might add. Well, thank you. Thank you. Uh, we've spent a lot of time working on that. Uh, Tyler's done a lot of work with the YouTube, uh, the way it looks and everything else. And then, of course, uploading a lot of the videos um, and just trying to get things up to date. And so we've we've gained a lot of subscribers since then and uh we've also blended taking the stuff from his ifatc channel and from my flight academy channel and have put everything into one so it's one central location for everything which is great i love the cohesion yes yes it was a big word that i didn't know so thank you for adding that in there my pleasure um but yeah we're trying to uh we're trying to put out you know videos tutorial videos on a regular basis uh normally uh, I put one out on Mondays. If it's not a video, it's a uh, it's a graphic tutorial, um, you know, some type of image tutorial, if you will. Uh, but we're trying to do at least one tutorial, video tutorial a week. Uh, last week, uh, I did on how to file a flight plan and gotten a lot of good feedback on that. Nice. So especially for the uh, the newer people and try to explain, you know, what all the symbols mean on the map and everything else. Um which which has worked out really well. Uh, if you're going to file a flight plan, obviously you need to know what the symbols mean. Uh, this next one that I'm working on is basically from spawn to takeoff. Mm. From the moment you spawn, you know what's the process from the time you spawn to the time you take off. So that's what I'm working on now. Hopefully uh, we'll have that one ready and posted by Monday. Awesome. Yep. Great. Well, Mark, as you know, I took a little golf vacation recently yes how was that it was it was awesome um and i posted a few pictures on uh, instagram and and on face on the flightcast facebook page as i went along but uh i was on our way back to buffalo uh, it's a little cheaper usually to fly to where i need to go in virginia if we fly out of buffalo on american airlines and uh so on our way back to buffalo it was it was cool we had a nice uh, approach on a it was a clear evening and I noticed that we basically did a straight shot to the airport on on kind of a, basically on that thirty degree intercept that we always talk about in Infinite right. Flight because I could see the um, I could see the airport as we approached and then they just turned straight inbound. So I asked the pilot when we landed. My dad and I kind of hung back a little bit and asked him, you, you know, was that a straight in approach? And I noticed that he dumped flaps really quickly, like first two notches of flaps right away, and then slowed right down dump the next two notches of flaps all at once. And then he, I said, did, did you fly the visual in on that? And he said, yeah, actually, neither of us have been here before. And, uh, <laughs> and I said, man, you, you guys flew in there like cowboys. It was fantastic. And he said, what, oh, what kind of plane was it? This was a, 
brand new as of mid last year uh a319 nice yeah it was you can tell it's just a little bit roomier and smoother and it was great but my dad of course can't help himself and and i asked if i could take a picture of the flight deck and he said oh yeah sure it's not much to look at all the screens were dark but i posted that on facebook and he he says uh my dad says you know he he does a, a podcast where he interviews actual pilots and i'm thinking oh dad this guy is a pilot he doesn't care <laughs> and uh, i said yeah it's it's uh if you ever heard of infinite flight it's a mobile flight simulator and he goes i'm sorry man uh once i'm out of here i'm not thinking about aviation at all so not really interested that must have been the captain i it was the captain yeah yep. the first officer was already in the airport looking around and telling people where the bathroom was and stuff like that. He was probably in the gift shops trying to find his next model airplane or <laughs> exactly. something. Exactly. He still loves aviation. Oh, yeah. There, there's such a huge difference between the first officers and the captains. And a lot of the captains that I know, yes, they love their job. They love what they do. Um, but, yeah, you know, it's flying from A to B. Uh, you know, they, they want something that's going to be a little bit more challenging to where they can shoot others down and stuff like that to get rid of the frustrations of being behind a 172 on final in real life and they're having to slow to stall speed. So, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but the first officers, you know, they're like, oh, yeah, yeah. And, <clears throat> you know, a lot of the captains, of course, are the more tenured and uh, senior uh, people right. in the airline. So, yeah, they, when they're done, they're done. First officers, you know, they never get to push any buttons or anything. They're allowed to put their hand on the top of the dash for a selfie, but that's about it. We may need to get some of our pilot friends back on the podcast to talk about that, Mark. <laughs> I don't know oh, if they'd yeah. agree with you. Yeah, absolutely. We can get uh, we can get Airnote on here, and you know he can explain more about the uh, the little tray that pulls out first coloring book and all that stuff. That was a great podcast, by the way. It, it was. was. Like watching, it was like listening to a tennis match between between Melvin and Airnote. Man, it was hilarious. Well, what I loved is these guys haven't flown. Melvin hasn't flown an Airbus, Arnout hasn't flown a Boeing, so it was completely biased, which is right. what I was hoping for. I think an, another interesting uh, side of the coin would be to chat with someone like Jared, who's flown both, and get that kind of perspective. But for right. but for that episode, it was great because you know you ask them the question which is better, and they they have no hesitation about telling you that the one they fly is the best. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. I mean, and, and I learned a lot. I didn't know that, you know, when you're flying the side stick on the Airbus, that if the captain, uh, is the PIC for that leg or whatever, that, you know, the first officer, the, the right, uh, side stick does not mimic what's happening on the left. Like it does with the yokes in the Boeing. Yeah. Uh, of course the yoke is in the 172. And, you know, a friend of mine owns a uh, Cirrus SR-22. And so I've had the privilege of being able to fly his plane with him. Uh, even got to fly left seat a couple of times. Ooh. And it, it, took some, it took some getting used to. And, yes, there is a lot of leg room. And especially for me being 6'5", I want that leg room. Mm. But it, it took some getting used to. But, man, it, it, it was pretty cool. A Cirrus is pretty quick, too, yeah? Oh, it's like flying on rails, man. It's just, it's just so sleek, so fast. And, you know, of course in a 172, I'm going 110, 120, if I have a nose down. 
mm-hmm. but you're cruising at around 110, 115, and then you get into a Cirrus, you know, you're going 160, 170, 180, and, you know, your ground speed is 200 plus, and, oh, you feel like you're in a jet. Yeah. Plus, with the side stick, that, that makes it, you know, that makes it feel a lot different. But for me, personally, I prefer the yoke. I've flown both, but I prefer the yoke. I'm actually, I'm not, I'm not surprised to hear you say that at all. Well, I just prefer the yoke for a couple of reasons. To me, it's, it's more comfortable. It, it, it's more like driving a car. You know, you rest your hand on the steering wheel. You can rest your hand on the yoke. Um, and normally, I fly the uh, when I fly, I don't have a tight grip on the yoke. A lot of instructors will teach you not to do that. Um, I actually use three fingers, two to three fingers, just rested on the back of the yoke when I'm at cruise, and that's what I'm flying with. I'm not sitting there with a tight grip, a death grip on the yoke. Um, but on the yoke, you know, there's so much that you can do as far as you can either yoke mount a GPS, a portable GPS, or you can yoke mount your tablet or your phone uh, so you have it right there in front of you. So there, there's a lot of things. The yoke is great, of course, for me as far as controlling the plane, but it's also great to be able to attach accessories to uh, that's going to be right there in front of you. You know, you can have a clipboard on it for so you can see your approaches if you don't have a knee board and stuff like that, which right. I do. Nice. So, oh, yeah. Well, for any listeners who are wondering what in the world we're talking about, go ahead and check out Flightcast episode 21 where we talked with 777 real-life pilot Melvin and... Uh, a380 pilot Arnout, and they talked about Boeing versus Airbus, and you can check that out on flightcast.audio or on youtube.com slash flightcastaudio. Yep. Good stuff, man. Well, let's get to it. I'm really excited to introduce today's guest. He is the creator and pilot behind Flight Shops. Steve Thorne's goal has been to produce ride-along videos of his own experiences as a private pilot, mistakes and all, in hopes that it will help the aviation community. He describes himself as possibly the least cocky pilot on the internet. The Flight Shop's YouTube channel has almost 60,000 subscribers and continues to grow. I recently asked Steve if he would give Infinite Flight a try and have a chat with me, and he has graciously agreed to do it. Steve Thorne, it is a huge pleasure to welcome you to the podcast. Uh, no problem. Happy to be here. First, you and I could have almost met up in person for this interview. Uh, tell us where you're from and maybe how you got into flying. I'm from Toronto, Canada. Um, how I got into flying, I guess, like most pilots, it's just one of those things that you just always knew you wanted to do. So uh, there was never a doubt as to wanting to do it. It was just a question of getting it done. So I've always wanted to ever since I was a kid. The first memories I've got we're looking at airplanes and uh it really just was just get it done i I tried doing it the air cadet route when i was in my tweens but uh quickly discovered i was not compatible with the military vibe which is just the way i am i completely respect everyone that's in the military i just that ain't me um i also realized i did some quick math and realized that the amount of time that i was spending at air cadets I could more than make the amount of money that the private pilot license would cost at that time, which was in the early 90s. It was about three grand, which is obviously not what it is now. But um, I quickly did that math and realized even if I could make it in the top 1% of the air cadets that do get funded, which I wasn't going to be able to do because I was terrible at all the military 
stuff related to air cadets beyond the flying. Um, so I, I got a part-time job and saved the money. So I actually had the money saved up by the time I was 17. Problem is I was 17 and I bought a car because <laughs> oh. that's what you do when you're 17. <laughs> because, um, of, because of ladies. With that, I guess that probably was all about mainly part of it, sure. Yeah. Um, so really it was on hold a little bit again through the end of high school, but it was always something I wanted. And I ended up doing it in university when I was in full on student mode. I just took it on as another course and got it done. Essentially during first and second year, I got my gliding. I started with gliding and then got my power license. That was in 95. So what were you in university for? Film school. I went to film school. Oh, okay. Well, that so, comes uh, in handy nowadays. Does. And actually, uh, Brock and James, who are a core part of Flight Shops, are in my like graduating class in 98. So, I mean, those guys are lifelong friends. Beauty. And uh, that brings us to today, where I avail myself of those connections in the film industry to get real production value into a YouTube channel. Okay. So you got into gliding, and then what happened after that? Uh loved it uh, the only problem with gliding is that it does require an entire day like you can't just show up and fly for half an hour and leave so <clears throat> i kind of never got back to it after that first season which is sort of sad but it was really only because i couldn't do it time wise but it, it is something i'm looking at getting back into possibly as a tow pilot um, but i really just used it as a stepping stone to get all my fundamentals down in the most efficient affordable way that i could and it was a great way to do it because it really, I never missed a forced approach or, you know, anything like that in power. I always impressed my instructors during my early training because I just had those fundamentals and it really wasn't a thing. Like, it's like, well, I mean, landing, every landing is a forced approach. You're not, you're not going around unless it's, I mean, you're not going around, right? It's, you're going to land somewhere. If someone gets in your way on the runway, you're just going to make it happen. Right. And in a way, that's almost a detrimental thing for me. I've, I've really tried to work on remembering that the go around is an option in your toolkit if you don't like your approach, you know, you're not committed, you have an engine, right? Um, so there is a part of me that has always tried to save approaches just because in the back of my mind, I feel like there's some pride thing or something related to the idea of not screwing up an approach because you screwed it up. Mm. And, and I've definitely saved some that I should probably have just show, like gone around. Um, so I try to apply that in my flying now, but anyway, to answer your question, yeah, I started with soaring and, and I've never gotten the pure, like flying with a piece of yarn in front of you that you're looking at for your coordination and you're listening to the sound for your airspeed. It really doesn't get better than that. And I, I do remember getting into power when I first started feeling like all those instruments in the engine, it was all quite a distraction and it really was taking away from the experience of pure flying. And I got back to it recently with doing tailwheel flying the super cub a lot and the steerman. And most recently I got into the chipmunk and that's all pretty much eyes out and feel and listening. And it brought me back to that feeling of gliding where it's 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 you in the airplane. It's not about instruments. That's really what I like. Nice. Awesome. Plus in that Stearman with the open cockpit, there's nothing like it. I had the privilege of flying a Stearman years ago. And that open cockpit itself is just, there's nothing else like it to me. Yeah, it's brilliant. Yeah. It's, it's, it is. That, yeah, that airplane is awesome. It's an amazing bird. So let, yeah. we'll get back to airplanes a little bit later, guys. But for yeah. now, Steve, what? Um, how did Flight Shops get started? Why don't you tell? It's been. It seems hugely successful in the last little while. So tell us a bit about the background. Sure. Uh, yeah, I guess what it comes down to is I went through a period. So I started flying in the mid '90s. You know, as a student, university, and kind of 
had no money when I got my license. It was kind of like I slapped the license down on the table after getting it and realized like, okay, now what? Like I, I really tried to do this efficiently. I pushed myself hard to do it in minimums. Now I have this thing and I don't really know what to do with it other than I just know I want it. And, and it really came down to maintaining currency was a constant struggle. And I had a few years where I did like the absolute minimum, which was half an hour per month, which was the requirement for insurance where I was renting. So I actually literally have a couple years there where I logged like a point five a month. And, you know, that's horrible, right? I mean, it's not safe. It's the absolute minimums. Right. Um, and then it came down to when life got in the way, getting the house, getting married, having a kid. I just ended up losing my currency. And it was about a four-year period there where I didn't fly. And getting back to it, my wife was really supportive. And she saw me looking up all the time. And we live really quite close to an airport. So I'm always seeing the planes departing and arriving at low altitude. Um, so I got back. And uh, had a different mindset. I wasn't like a poor student anymore, but I, I needed, I still needed a mission or a justification. So I just literally started looking around for reasons to get current and, and stay current. And GoPros existed at that time. So I started filming my flying for debriefing. And it kind of all came together where I was making new flying friends, getting opportunities to fly different airplanes, debriefing my own stuff with my own footage and looking at the internet for resources to stay current, which I found a lot of material on YouTube specifically, but I also felt like there was a big problem there in that context was constantly missing. And it's not that they're, uh, like, they aren't editors. Like, a lot of these people are just post, you know, they post their videos sometimes, like, right from the moment they press the record button to the moment they stop it, and it's all, like, you know, in their hand while they're looking at it while they're stopping it. I mean, zero editing on some of these videos, mm -hmm. and that's fine. But I felt like it was problematic because people are looking at these things, not sure if it's instructional content or not. I just felt like there was a gap to fill. And uh, so I decided to sort of start sharing it more widely and bring it down to having the film industry friends and so on. And James is, is my director friend. and He's a really brilliant artist. I, I originally intended to only make it kind of a POV experience, just immersive me debriefing my own stuff and not make it about me at all. I'm not really interested in being on camera, frankly. But James essentially said, you have to put the you in YouTube if you want to do this. Uh -huh. And I, I reluctantly agreed with him. <clears throat> and at the time, I was rocking a Movember mustache. I remember very clearly, we, we have this sort of annual tradition where a bunch of the guys go out for a steak dinner and we just kind of have fun and see how high we can get the bill. And we were jamming on this idea of what to brand this thing. And I also play the drums, so I'm often working on my drum chops, just trying okay. to get better. Nice. We're both drummers, too. There you go. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the idea of practicing in chops was a thing. I had this stupid mustache on. And we really, over that night, we branded it and we had the logo sketched on a napkin. And if you remember the first version of the logo, it was quite cartoony and, I mean, literally a joke. So when it did start to get some traction, we kind of gave it a little upgrade to give it a more corporate vibe. But at the end of the day, it's still a, a logo based on a joke. You keep saying funny. you keep saying we, Steve. Is there a more than just you that that is the kind of the flight shop's owner? No, I'm the owner, but I can't take credit for all of the creation. I mean, okay, the bottom line it. is I can't I can't do what I do without my team. Sure. So James and Brock are my core team, really. Right? James is like the artist director who really helps make the films with me. Because at the end of the day, it's a struggle to. And this is something I'm constantly struggling with. And you may have noticed in a lot of my newer videos, I'm not PIC very often because the scale of the productions are getting pretty elaborate. So I'm very careful to not be PIC if I'm shooting with the crew. Because at that point, 
any part of my brain as a filmmaker, I have to acknowledge that I'm distracted. I'm not going to be PIC. Yeah, I noticed so, that, especially with the mountain flying. Yeah, actually, the latest one I published was the first time I, I didn't put a lot of context in to like hit that point again. Because I've, I've this is the seventh episode of that series, and I've hit that point several times to say, this is a film, and we're working on this production, and it's quite a challenge. And I'm not PIC. I didn't literally say it in this episode, and I got people bringing that up. Because I, I showed a part where we struggled, where James was struggling to get the iPad capture to work from the back seat with a laptop, and it was quite complicated. And it was hot, and things overheated, and things started failing, and we lost the network connection in the plane. And there was a moment where we had time before we got back to the mountain range where we actually did some orbits in like this safe area i had jason the instructor take control and i tried to work it out with james i put a tiny piece of that in the episode because later on we could only use screen grabs of the ipad like we didn't have live video like we did for all the rest so i just felt like it needed to be part of the story that we lost the live feed so i didn't want people asking me why it was still images later Mm -hmm. but i kind of shot myself in the foot by putting a focus on the filmmaking aspect without like literally explicitly saying this is me as a filmmaker right now in the left seat of the airplane not pic and people like brought it up they're like man you look distracted as pic that's not cool and it's like yeah well it wouldn't be cool if i was pic but i wasn't as i say multiple times in previous episodes (laughs) but the the lesson that i learned there was context does not carry forward into future episodes Mm -hmm. so that's i need to so as much as flight chops is about me improving as a pilot i also debrief the filmmaking aspects and I, i'm trying to make the films it's a struggle to try to make them as tight and engaging as i can while also covering the nerdy content as much as i want to be indulgent but you know i watch the analytics and i realize like if i want to keep things engaging i i'm not stuck with the same rules that tv shows are stuck with which is why i love not working in tv very much because it drives me crazy when we get given a task for a tv show to edit ultimately all of the good content in my opinion is lost when you get something down to the tiny quick scenes that they need to be for tv which is mostly just about drama and right the ultimate underlying topic stops mattering so yeah. i'm in a balance where i'm trying to manage both i'm trying to make engaging content that also has the nerdy stuff that all the aviators are going to want to see <clears throat> and it's definitely a team effort so steve you've mentioned a couple times the debrief and did that ca- mm-hmm. did that come from your training when you were getting your PPL, I, I, I read, um, yep. I read Jason Shepard's, um, private pilot bl- blueprint book and mm-hmm. he talks a lot about the debrief. And so did that, did that video debrief come as an idea from your instructor or was that something that you came up with on your own? Yeah. Uh, I can't take credit for that either. I think early on I had some good wisdom come from one of my really early mentors who suggested I take detailed notes who kind of made the joke that if you look at your logbook, there's one line for remarks. And if you have any flight ever that only requires one line of remarks, you're either not noticing the mistakes you're making or you're lying to yourself. Right. So uh, he made a really good argument that every flight, I should get home immediately after the flight and find time to make like a page of notes. And I always did. So I had these like big text documents where I would write notes to myself about how it went, whether it was good, bad, whatever. So yeah, my debriefing was always a detailed process. And you know, frankly, as someone that wasn't flying very often, it was a way to relive the flight and gain value. I mean, you know, you're spending a lot of money per hour. Why not review it and spend some time and get more value out of it? Mm-hmm. So it was an easy evolution to take it to the next step with recording it. Uh, what was cool though was realizing recording it gave you an extra layer which was that you couldn't uh like basically previous notes could only be based on what you could remember now you're in a situation where 
you can relive it and see things you didn't notice at the time, which in a lot of cases is very sobering. Like you really see mistakes you were making that you just don't know you're making because you, until you're third party, you know, observing, you don't see it. Or you can watch it with your instructor and he can say, did you see that? Because if you're solo or, you know, whatever, you're just flying for fun. It's, you're not, you know, the instructor isn't there with you. Right. You see that so, cirrus fly in front of your nose that you didn't notice before? Right. Well, yeah, anything like that, or even just a radio call or sometimes, you know, you're like, why was the tower kind of sounding snippy? And then you realize, oh, that was the third time he tried to call me. Right. You know, because when you listen to it later, you're like, I didn't notice because my passenger was talking or whatever. And you think you didn't miss it, but then you realize that you did miss it. And that's why the tower was annoyed by the time he finally got a hold of you. Gotcha. Something like that. Hmm. I want to talk a little bit about some of your recent experiences. And we've just talked about some of your mountain flying that you did recently. Um, I've been wanting to chat with you for a while, Steve, but the kind of final straw was when you posted a video of the Super, Club, uh, Super Cub on floats in Florida. And as some mm-hmm. Flightcast listeners know, my first and only experience learning to fly so far was as a teenager. And it was in that exact airplane, same color, uh, on floats up here in Ontario. So uh, my grandfather also had uh, a Cub on floats for years and years. Um, so that episode was, it really hit home and it was... I don't know, it was important for me in my aviation cool. journey. So um, how was that experience for you? Can you fill us in a little yeah. bit about that? Uh, yeah, so it was actually a J3 Cub. It only has 65 horsepower. And uh, that you do have to fly those planes from the back seat compared to the Super Cub where you're PIC from the front seat. Okay, so why um, why is that uh, actually? Oh, and, and before you before you say that, my just for people like my mom who are listening, PIC is pilot in command. Yes, there you go. Context. Context. Always must add context. There we go. Okay, so sorry. Uh, sure. Yeah. So with the planes like the J3, um, the fuel tank is just on the top of the engine up there on the nose. So for weight and balance reasons, you can't solo it from the front seat. So you have to be okay. further back. Okay. So that's essentially why the Super Cub has fuel tanks in the wings, and it's not limited by that kind of thing. And there's also a bunch of controls in the Super Cub that you can't reach from the back seat. So. It's not an option, but the, the J3 Cub is set up so that everything you need is in the back seat, ironically, except for instruments. You have zero instruments back there. Right, so but, if someone's uh, sitting in the front, it's a challenge, I'm assuming. <laughs> well, yeah, right? Like the steerman uh, is also a pilot in command from the back seat. I don't think it's because of weight and balance limitations, but I think it's because of the way warbirds are set up. You're so far back that it was a trainer to getting you ready for that stuff. Mm-hmm. The difference, though, is that in the steerman, you have a full panel back there. Um, so it is interesting, but, uh, I think the instructor was impressed cause I made it clear, like, this is my first float lesson ever, whatever, let's see how this goes. But I really didn't have a problem doing any of it because I applied my steerman training, which essentially means, you know, you're much more in tune because at the end of the day for flying, you do not need to see what's in front of you for landing and taking off. I mean, you obviously need to make sure the runway is clear before you get there, but once you're on short final, what's in front of you doesn't help you figure out your descent and your alignment as much as your peripheral vision does. That's why they teach you to just look straight ahead way down at the end because you're pretty much ignoring that. What you need to know is what's happening with your descent and what's happening with your alignment and all that information comes from peripheral vision. So I applied that with knowing what was happening in the J3 Cub by listening uh, you know the rpm once you figure out what the power setting is based on how it sounds you pretty much can ballpark it and airspeed you just fly the pitch and again pitch information you get all that from the back seat without a problem so 
that was cool to see that applied, getting into a new airplane that I'd never flown before and applying it to floats. The hardest part I found about the float flying was that it is really important that you completely break your descent like 10 feet off the ground, which is not something I typically do, but you can't afford to come down at all with a nose pitch down attitude because if, if you dig the floats in, you're going to have a very bad day. That's a cartwheel. Whereas it's, yeah, it's not, yeah, it's going to go very badly. Whereas if you come down and don't break your descent with an airplane with wheels, you might bounce or whatever. It won't be brilliant, but it won't be terrible. But the point is that with the float plane, you pretty much have to break your descent and then mush it in for the last 10 feet. So that was the only uniquely hard thing or challenging because I'm, I'm pretty good at bringing it in and like getting it leveled out at like three feet off the ground, but you can't afford to take the risk of making the mistake there. So that's why they kind of train it that at 10 feet, if you have not broken your descent, the instructor is going to grab the stick. So um, that was sort of the biggest learning moment with float flying. Ah, I thought you did great. What do I know? But I thought you did great. <laughs> I picked uh, it up. I mean, but yeah. that was the thing I think I showed in the video where he's saying that to me. He's like, no, you got to break the descent sooner. It's yeah. like, okay. He pretty much had me starting to break the descent at 20 feet. And he wanted me to have zero descent rate at 10 with the nose up and then just mush it in with the nose up. And it does land beautifully. Yeah. And the great thing is you've got lots of like... Yeah, well, so. that's it too, right? I mean, that it's not an issue of trying to land short. And it does land short. As soon as you touch down, the drag is so high, like it just stops. Yeah. So that was not a problem. It was the takeoff that you had to think about making sure you have enough room. Yeah. So yeah, very cool. You had another really cool opportunity recently getting checked out in the Chipmunk. Um, I'd love to hear about that. Yeah. So the Canadian Historical Aircraft Association is based in Windsor, which is not too far from here. And they've got a really cool mandate, which is that they want to keep these airplanes flying, which most of the flying museums, you know, have that type of mandate. But the difference here is that they acknowledge that it's only going to happen if they get young pilots flying them. So they don't really have a lot of requirements for your experience because they believe they can train you. And again, if you think about what was going on in the wartime, I mean, kids were flying these airplanes with almost no time and they were getting safe and, and going out there with really little experience to manage these airplanes. So, mm -hmm. you know, they have requirements that are reasonable, but they're not insane. Like some of the places that have warbirds that want a thousand hours PIC and they want like hundreds of hours of tailwheel before they even look at you. And, you know, some private pilots will never see a thousand hours in their entire flying career just based on being weekend warriors, right? So this place is cool. They'll take you with not a super amount of experience and then build you up and uh, you join the association, it's it's basically, what well, it's a completely set up as a charity, so just to make that clear, it's not a training outfit. They put you into their um, fleet, I guess, or whatever you want to call it, of pilots, so that you're one of the guys that can ferry the airplanes to shows, do static displays, and so on, and then eventually they'll train you for formation flying so that you can do displays with the aircraft at, at a certain point, but that you have to upgrade to. Oh, wow. Is that something so you'd like to do? it's very cool. Definitely. Maybe. I'm heading back there in a couple of weeks to continue. I'm, I'm going to really try hard to not drop the ball on staying current with that and build up my experience and try to get onto the A-team with those guys. But it's hard because the guys that are on the A-team that do a lot of flying, they really do fly weekly. Mm. And uh, it's a five-hour or four-hour drive from Toronto, but if I get rides, I can fly out there with different friends for GA, be there without too much time. But again, it like soaring. It's not the kind of thing I could just show up fly and leave you kind of have to help out get the airplanes out of the hangar and then clean them up and put them away like it's you it's know these airplanes day. it's a full day and part of what i'll show in the series of the training is, is how much work i have to spend like one of the planes particularly has a lot of 
I mean, they're old airplanes. They weren't built super tight, and they leak a lot of oil normally. So after a flight, you come back, and it's pretty covered in oil, and you do have to clean it up. And that's, you know, elbow grease, literally. And, you know, you have to kind of be part of that process. It's so great to be able to track flights live and find places to open frequencies where the traffic is in Infinite Flight. Cam is here to tell us a bit more about Live Flight. I think you pretty much nailed it, Jason. Awesome, but there is more to it than just flight tracking. Indeed. Have you tried flying with a joystick on your iPad yet? The Autonav feature in Connect is pretty sweet too, I must admit. So, what's coming next for Live Flight? You'll have to wait and see, but let's just say flying on Infinite Flight will never be the same again. Go and check out what we have out now though. You easily spend countless hours tracking flights in Infinite Flight Live whilst doing some proper joystick flying. Thanks, Cam. In the meantime, everyone, head over to liveflightapp.com for your next flight. Now back to the podcast. Steve, since this is a Infinite Flight podcast, let's just bring it around to the simulator okay. for a little bit. Uh, as I said in my intro, you were nice enough to take the time out of your crazy schedule to give it a try for us. So I'm anxious to hear what you thought, being a private pilot and also having just tried Infinite Flight for the first time. So um, what did yeah. you think? Well, what I was impressed with was that it was immediately intuitive and accessible. Like I had it installed and I was flying circuits in a 172 instantly and I completely understood how to work it. So that was pretty cool. Um, yesterday I was on a field trip with my daughter. And I think you emailed asking what I thought of the Spitfire. I didn't even realize the Spitfire was an option. And on the bus ride back, I downloaded the Spitfire and was flying the Spitfire instantly once again. And she was sort of chilling with her friends on the bus. So I took a minute to try it and crashed the hell out of it. So yeah. I was on the bus, yeah. But uh, it was it was neat to see how intuitive it is. I mean, I completely get it. You know, the way you guys have the rudder implemented and the controls are very cool. So and it looks great. So I think it definitely bringing the sim to mobile uh, is is a definitely an interesting challenge and removing the need for hardware control and so on. It seems like a very cool. I've never seen one of the. Online. I haven't seen a uh, mobile sim before that I thought was intuitive like that, so I was very impressed with that. Cool. You'll have to, when you get another chance, you'll have to give the uh, ForeFlight link a try, and uh, we'll get you on live so that Mark and I can um, guide you around on ATC. Yeah, that's cool, right? The fact that you guys have that happening. So you just plug in your headphones and you're able to talk to live um, no, we a- we actually do. Um, there's commands. There's kind of virtual commands just using um, the touchpad and okay. so basically if you're on an iphone siri reads the reads the instructions back to you um so you have a, you, you have a menu to choose from and you know you can request to taxi request to so you talk there's different frequencies you talk to ground you talk to tower you talk to approach center um so yeah there there's lots to lots to kind of what's great is i love holding short you know whether you're flying a prop or or jet and seeing you you literally have to hold short and wait for arrivals to come in and yeah of, of other sim people that's cool yes the, exactly yeah, it, yeah well jason he'll be you know we'll let jason control and you and i will take spitfires out and i'll show you how to fly the spitfire that, that yeah, that's cool that's my plane all right we've got to have find some time for that steve um right on <laughs> yeah so you you already mentioned the spitfire um steve you're a big fan of four flight um do you have, are you sponsored on your show by four flight Yes, yeah. uh, Four Flight was actually the real, the first real sponsor that I got, which was cool because I, I sort of held out for a while trying to figure out how to monetize or t- try to create a budget for my productions. 
so I didn't do any YouTube monetizing. I just didn't feel like it was worth it. And I also felt like it was annoying to make people sit through commercials. And I can't stand those pop-up banners that block part of the frame. Like, yeah. that's like a deal breaker for me. So I never did any monetizing for the first year or so. Uh, then I launched a Patreon campaign to sort of figure out if crowdfunding would work. And it totally did, which was great. What it also did was kind of help me with, I didn't really ever need to pitch sponsors, which was really great. But having the crowdfunding campaign working kind of really showed people or sponsors that if viewers are willing to pay for something that they know is free, that's pretty cool. So it, it really helped. And Forflight was the first real sponsor to come on board, and they had basically no demands. Like they liked what I was doing. And just to kind of solidify that with the viewers, the first episode we did that was sponsored was about the extra 300 fully you know aerobatic lessons and zero ipad involvement like there were no ipads in the cockpit while we we're flying upside down so you know i had this episode sponsored by an ios app and i showed zero product it was actually the first it was a two-part series no you know i just want people to realize like it's not going to become the four flight show right it's not about product placement because of being forced to it's about because i'd already been using four flight in the videos before because i was literally using it like i don't you know what I mean? So that kind of helped me set the precedent for how I would do sponsorships. And then that went forward, moving on to like companies like Bose and other ones that I've gotten that really don't push me to do anything that I don't want to do. So I think the viewers see that we're not going to change anything. It just helps generate revenue. Cool. Did you, did you approach ForeFlight? Did you just cold call them or did somebody reach out I to you? I didn't actually. Like, like uh, yeah, I was, I've been lucky. I haven't had to pitch sponsors. It's been pretty cool. I think it kind of comes down to the concept of if you build it, they will come. Right. That's sort of the way I've functioned with everything. Like, I don't promote the heck out of this stuff for viewers either. I sort of just put it out there and let it be what it is. Some people think I'm crazy for not working harder to promote the content. Like, I've had some creators tell me that 80% of your effort should be promoting the content that you spend 20% of your time making. Mm. But I'm like, well, I can't do that. I just don't have the energy. I'm trying to put out a new video every two weeks. And uh, basically every second Friday is what I do. Um, actually, this I think this week, for occasionally I bump it by a week just to offset so that it resyncs back with Patreon because I do two paid posts per month on Patreon. And if you figure out how Fridays land in the month, that gets out of sync after a certain period right. of time. Yeah. So I'm probably going to push the next one by a week just to resync it with Patreon. It gives me a minute to think and relax for a second also because I've been doing a lot of shooting lately and that takes away from the editing time. Okay. The, so, the average episode can take like five days to edit. So is this your full time? This is your full time gig then? At this point, uh, well, mo it's come to that almost because I'm a freelance filmmaker. I'm lucky that I don't have a real job, so I can, it's hard to measure how much time I spend on certain things. Um, I still have a few corporate clients, but I've stopped taking TV jobs, which is cool okay. because I, I mean, they are very time consuming, and I do find them to be a bit soul sucking. So that I haven't had to do for a while, which is cool. I feel like my what, what started off as a vacation from work, TV work, making my own show about flying, definitely it takes more than half my time at this point. So that's cool. Probably, yeah, maybe we're closer to three quarters now. It's, I'll have to revisit that. I haven't uh, assessed it recently. So Steve, do you have any other simulator experience? That A lot of our pilots, our real-life pilots that we interview okay. that use Infinite Flight and do a lot of control, ATC controlling or whatever, they've got you know they were doing simming long before they were flying is that you as well or is this uh, uh i was uh like i mean i had the earliest versions of microsoft flight sim way way back in like the early 90s um 
then I had like Falcon 3.0, which is like an F16 sim. I remember being super excited by that and installing that off three and a half inch floppy disk. It was like no, nine thanks. or ten discs. <laughs> yeah. I, I remember, remember like that. I had it on the I, Commodore. <laughs> right. Okay. So I had that on the Apple, I want to say. Maybe it wasn't. It was one of my early PCs. But um, it. Uh, I remember I bought it and it took me like three different tries going back and forth to the store to get one that had all nine or ten discs without a corrupt one. Like Dang. literally, I, it was such a pain to install that thing, but it was so exciting to have it. Um, and then I went through a period where I didn't have Sim installed, and I haven't really in the last while. I've got it sitting on the shelf. Like I bought it a few years ago and just didn't get it installed on my PC. Well, you're doing the real thing uh, all the so, time anyway. Well, it's a combination of that, just being so busy. Um, so yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, especially getting back into IFR training, which is taking forever, by the way, I'm, I'm, people constantly ask me because I've done multiple videos about IFR training over the past like two years, and they're like, "Are you seriously still training?" <laughs> it's like, well, yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, what it comes down to is I'm not in a hurry. I'm not under pressure to do it in minimums or something. I'm not doing it for a job. So really, I'm a weekend warrior just trying to get better. And IFR training is what it is for me i mean it's like I, i'm not focused and then it suffers you know it is the kind of thing that you have to be focused on so that i know sim will help me if i have a, a whatever sim i just need it set up that i can keep playing around and practicing my ifr procedures that'll well, definitely you make were me better. you were in like the ultimate badass sim a little while <laughs> ago Yes, I did get to fly the 737-200 at the Delta Flight Museum in Atlanta, which I highly recommend. It's not expensive because there's four seats in there that you can occupy with your group plus the operator who's like behind you guys. So you and four friends or three friends, so four of you total, can grab this thing and, you know, switch seats and enjoy it. It's full motion, level D, the whole nine yards. Hilariously fun. Oh, man. I highly recommend it. I did a two-part video on that. Yeah, so good. Steve, we're running out of time, so let's take a few questions from Facebook. Uh, we always ask people if they have any questions for the guests, if we can squeeze it in. So Nash is wondering, what aircraft would you like to see added to Infinite Flight? I know you haven't played it much, but um, what yeah. would you add? I don't know enough about what you already have, so I don't know if I'm really qualified to even answer the question. Right. Toss I think I'm impressed there. that the Spitfire is there. I think that impresses me. Um if you guys have tailwheel airplanes with good tailwheel dynamics, that to me is cool. I think that's something that sims have trouble with, or at least in my experience back in the day. Yeah, I think that's something them. something we could probably do a little bit better at. Would you agree, Mark? Yeah, we have the uh, the tailwheel aircraft that we have right now is the uh, Corsa Spitfire, and then we have the Decathlon. Mm. So I believe those are the only two tailwheel aircraft. We've okay, got. then let's get a Super Cub in there. Yes. And I'd love to, I'd love it if we could add in some um, water water takeoff and landings as well, but that's uh, that's probably down the road a fair ways. Sure. Arnout is asking, and Arnout's the uh, A380 pilot that we had on last episode, and and then uh, back in episode three or four. Uh, what airplanes do you fly, or have? What airplanes have you flown? So maybe you can give us a little list. I know you talked a little bit about about that at the start of the episode. Okay, so off the top of my head. I'll try to get them in order. Yeah. So it started off with the Schweitzer 233 glider. That's what I stole in. Then I moved to a Cessna 150. Enjoyed the hell out of that. Um, then I got, you know, the 172 once I got my license. But I did all my training in a 150, crammed in there with an instructor. And those things spin like a dream. So much fun to spin those things. 
Um, we did spin training in Canada. I guess in the States, they don't do that anymore for private. Oh, but, uh, but if you get the right instructor, my instructor was old school. Right. And he taught me a lot of stuff that's not in the book when I got my PPL. And he put me through all the spin training and everything else. Yeah. Uh, so graveyard spirals, all that stuff. So I love it. Yeah, it's important. But the scary thing is statistically, apparently, I forget what the exact number is, but I think it's more than 90% of the spin fatalities happen on dual training flights. Really? No, I think, I think, yeah, it's really high. And I think part of the reason for that is because the instructors that are doing the training maybe don't have enough experience themselves. I don't know. I think there's also issues with weight and balance where you really do have to respect that, that, you know, a 172 <laughs> or something, you really, you can spin it, but you have to make sure it's definitely in the utility, is the utility category, right? Yeah. So you have to make sure that, because if you're waiting, if you're too far aft with the center of gravity, you may not be able to recover no matter what you do. So anyway, uh, so I went to 172, and then I guess around that time, flew a bunch of different models. Then I flew the PA-28 Warrior and Archer fixed gear versions. No uh, retract yet. And then um, around that time, Diamond Aircraft came out with the DA-20, which having only flown Cessnas from the 70s, because at that in those days, I, the whole dynamics of what happened there with the lawsuits and so on in the States... Cessna and Piper, they all stopped making new airplanes in like the late 80s, I believe, or even the early 80s, right? Was that when it was? There was this it period was from of like, the, yeah, it was the early 80s. They went, yeah. I think the last model was like 76 or 77 right. for there the 172, go, yeah. and then like 84, 85 is when they started making them again. Is that when they started? Okay, so I didn't see new ones until the late 90s again. So I remember yeah. the first new one that I flew was like a 98 or a 99 model. Around that time, Diamond also started making those airplanes, which that, after getting out of a 172 from the 70s to get into a DA-20, which was like an F-16, literally, right? Bubble canopy, center stick, leather interior, nice avionics. It was, wow, it was the best. (laughs) The flight school that I was renting at bought four of them and then proceeded to go bankrupt like four months later. (laughs) But anyway, I had a period of time where I flew the hell out of those things. Um, And then I guess... uh, kind of just bouncing around between those different types i didn't really get into tailwheel until flight chops it was one of my sort of ways to reach out and try to expand different types and then from there it's been a lot of different types so i've got the uh satabria and then um steerman got the extra 300 which is very cool recently the chipmunk um i don't know off the top of my head okay awesome yeah he was also wondering what parts of the world have you flown in and where do you dream of going to fly? Oh, you definitely want to get to Europe and do some flying out there. I've got a lot of sort of uh, viewers and, that are inviting me to come out and fly with them in Europe and overseas nice. Africa. So definitely want to get out there. I haven't done any of that yet. Uh, probably one of the coolest places I ever flew was um, Hawaii. I actually got my American license sorted out back in the early 2000s and went there for, I was there for a job, a uh, film related job. And, uh, Rented an old beat up old 172 with some coworkers and did like a quick checkout with a dude in flip flops, and I was quite current <laughs> at the time, so it wasn't a hard checkout. And then uh, just took a 172 with my coworkers around Maui. That was epic. Um, otherwise, it's pretty much been all Canada and U.S. I haven't done a ton of anything else. Well, but, I've uh, got the some California stuff was good. I've got some hookups up here in Perry Sound. If you want to uh, make the trip up and do some float flying. 
Sure, yeah, I'm definitely going to get that rating done. So I'm just trying to figure out where and when I'm going to do it. But that has to happen. That's the best. Nice. Arnold's last question was, when are you taking Jason Flang? So I'll just, uh, i got to sneak that in there. <laughs> okay. I'll pay for fuel. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, if you right, right now what I'm really trying to do is fly the heck out of the Stearman. I'm lucky that my instructor owns one. Um, the paradox is that what's happened is he, he's the kind of guy that loves the project. It's his seventh airplane that he's built. Um, and the videos that we did, it, it's arguably the most perfect, pristine Stearman in the world because he recently built it from scratch and every nut and bolt is polished. It's, it's just mint beauty. Um, the videos that we featured it in have essentially become an ad campaign for it. And he's gotten so many offers to buy it. Um, and with the Canadian dollar, the way it is, it's really appealing to him to sell it to an American cause he'll make like 25% instantly just on yeah. the exchange. Right. Mm-hmm. So he's like, I don't know, Steve, like I'm not really flying it enough and it'd be nice to just sort of sell it and try to get another project on the go. So this may be the last season of that Stearman. So I'm going to just fly the crap out of it. So I don't know if you want to come down and fly that thing with us. It might be the last season for it. Um, yes, it I absolutely do. That's the answer to that question. All right. Well, it sounds like you should be buying a Stearman, Steve. <laughs> That's the Simple other problem. As that. is like people ask me, what do I want? I need four airplanes, you know, like I need a, I need something that is aerobatic and fast. I need something like the Stearman or a Super Cub or just something for fun, low and slow. I need something like a hauler, like that I can throw the family in and get places like a 210 or something. And, you know, a float plane or something like that. So I can't just buy one. So I'm pretty happy being a rental pilot. It's kind of like, you know, you don't have to feel guilty about dating lots of different airplanes, but uh, I don't want to get married to one. Now, I've noticed that the planes that you just listed, uh, as far as the four planes that you would need, the majority were high wings. You prefer the high wing Cessna over a low wing? Uh, no, I would take a low wing aerobatic plane. That's, I, I, I skipped over that quickly, but something fast like an RV-7 <laughs> or something would definitely be yeah. in there. Uh, as far as the haulers go or the float planes, everything else, they're all high wing, I guess. Yeah. Although Stearman is kind of both, right? So. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, I do like low wing for the sporty aspect of it. I feel like they just fly a little differently. They feel cooler or something. It feels but like taking, that, that's what we were talking about uh, before you came on. I, a buddy of mine has a Cirrus SR22 that I got to fly. And uh, getting used to a side stick versus a yoke was, uh, was, <clears throat> was interesting. But I think just flies like its own rails. It's just mm. so sleek and so fast. Yeah, that does bring a good point. I really prefer flying with a stick, and I don't know if that's from the primacy that that is how I started soaring with right-hand stick, left-hand spoilers, which is essentially the configuration of most tailwheel where it's right-hand stick, left-hand throttle. That is how I feel more natural flying, but I guess I'm lucky that I'm ambidextrous because I moved to power so quickly and had to go left-hand yoke, right-hand throttle. So I don't really ever have an issue jumping in and out of planes with different setups. I pretty quickly can figure out what it needs but yeah right hand stick left hand throttle is what i want so ultimately for fun flying that's why something like a super cub is so much fun but you put that into the context of something like an rv then you got speed and go upside down um but they're kind of delicate you can't really pound them into like rough fields and stuff so you know kind of need both well being a drummer gives you the ability to be ambidextrous to do that yeah, you know, maybe that's a thing. I don't, yeah, hand eye coordination, just, I just make it what I need it to be. I don't have too much fixation on left or right or whatever. That's true. Right. Maybe there is a correlation between being a drummer and wanting to fly using all four. Yeah, I mean, I live in Alabama doesn't mean I'm not smart. 
<laughs> yeah. Hands and feet, it's it's all, you know, you're using all of it when you're flying. Yeah. I've definitely always, I think also soaring put me in touch with my feet. So I've always been a good rudder pilot. I've never had my instructors give me trouble for not applying rudder. Mm. But I know a lot of power pilots can sit there with their legs crossed and get away with it. But now flying a helicopter, my father was in the Coast Guard for 26 years. And so I've had the privilege of, I've got 25 hours in the Falcon 20 simulator, full motion. Uh, that was pretty cool. And then I got to fly a couple of their helicopter sims. And I will tell you right now, flying a helicopter, though it's cool, it's still straight from the pit of hell. I don't care how <laughs> much you can use your hands and feet, you know, individually. That is a whole different world. Yeah, I'm going to get into that. Do you guys know Bradley Friesen at all on no, YouTube? No. <laughs> so just Google that. Um, he's he's this crazy Canadian pilot from the West Coast that he's kind of his claim to fame is that he put a hockey rink on a mountain. Oh and yeah, Wilson, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's him. Okay. So I'm going to be flying with him in BC, and he's like an awesome R44 pilot that gets out there in the mountains and does all kinds of crazy stuff. And uh, oh, I have to check that out. Oh man, you're going to make yeah. me nervous now, Steve. With a, at least with an airplane, if your engine's gone, you're still flying a glider. Uh, the helicopter guys will tell you that you're flying a glider. That's actually safer because it'll go into a smaller field. I mean, auto rotation is gliding. Oh gosh! Now, if you have, if you have a transmission failure, you're in a different world of hurt. But I mean, a if transmission failure. <laughs> yeah, but I think that's similar to a structural failure in an airplane. You, you know, if your wing falls off, you ain't gliding anymore. So. Uh, I don't know. Okay, well, I mean, I'll, I'll tail, tail rotor failure would be a bad day for a helicopter. But yeah, a lot of helicopter guys are like, look, man, if you just auto rotate, be good at it. It's the same as gliding. I okay. could not get off the ground to save my life. Now, once I was in the air, I was fine. Yeah. But I couldn't get off the ground and then I couldn't land. And I was just like, all right, let me get back into Falcon. I can't do this. <laughs> so it's a whole different world. Yeah. All right, Steve. Well, before I let you go, is there anything else that you might want to add? Maybe plug a sponsor or two. Uh, honestly, like I guess, really, it's just the community is what I want to thank for what I'm doing. Because I mean, at the end of the day, I just love filmmaking and I love flying, and I've been able to combine the two because the community is sort of actively a part of it, and the sponsors are a part of the community, and that's what's cool with the partnerships that I have. So, I mean, I don't. Uh, I mean, if you just go to flightchops.com. We have a really amazing, we're claiming to have the biggest contest in aviation monthly. We're giving away $2,000 plus worth of stuff every month. And that right there, you can engage with all the sponsors. You can see what they've got. And this month, the, the featured prize is an A20 headset from Bose, but you also get stuff from everybody else. And, and that's really fun and cool. And we, we've set up a thing on the website that really allows for engagement that gets sponsors some exposure, but it's not. It's very tasteful, so it doesn't feel like spammy at all. Um, so I guess that's it. I would just plug flightchops.com and go get in and get a chance to win some cool stuff because it's a niche market and we the odds are actually quite good for winning like amazing stuff and nobody's arguing with us that we're calling it the biggest aviation or monthly contest in aviation. No one can claim that it's not true because it is and it's just getting bigger. So jump on that. I'm really proud to be able to give stuff away. Steve, what I would just like to say, uh, you know, on behalf of the FDS, man, at, at uh, Flying Development Studio and Infinite Flight, Man, I appreciate you taking some time out to, to learn that the app itself, the sim, and flying that, and hopefully we'll see you around. Cool. See you in the skies. All right, well, yeah, let's go fly that steerman. Whoever wants to come down, it's we're getting her out this week. I'm in. He, he, Dennis doesn't fly it when it's below 12 degrees Celsius just because it's hard on the engine because it generates a lot of water. It's a byproduct of, production, of uh, combustion, 
and it doesn't get out of those bottom cylinders if it doesn't burn off. Right. So he doesn't like to run it when it's not warm enough, but it's warming up now, so she'll be running this week. Boom. I'm I'm calling yeah. you, man. All right. Well, you got my info, so yeah, let me All know. Right. Steve Thorne, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us on Flightcast today. It's a big honor. No problem, man. Thanks for having me. That was fellow Canadian and creator of Flight Chops, Steve Thorne, and he joined me on Skype from Toronto. You can find lots of Steve's work by checking out his YouTube channel. Just search for Flight Chops. Thanks as always for listening. If you haven't already, head over to the App Store or Google Play and download Infinite Flight. For more of the podcast, visit our website and be sure to subscribe on iTunes or YouTube. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash flightcastaudio and on Twitter at flightcastaudio. If you have any ideas for the show, please leave them in the comments. Flightcast is brought to you by Linkhouse Media on the web at linkhousemedia.com. We can always use your financial support to keep us going. And now a new way to do that is to head over to flightcast.audio slash shop and get your very own Flightcast hat, t-shirt, and other accessories. You can also donate by visiting flightcast.audio and clicking the yellow donate button in the sidebar. To cover the fine print, Flightcast is not affiliated with Infinite Flight or Flying Development Studio. I'm Jason Rosewell. Thanks for listening and happy landings. All right. Well, that's good for now. Mm-hmm. You did um, well. You read through that without having to stop. Thanks, man. You spo- That's when you're supposed to say, I'm proud of you. Well, if that would make you feel better, uh, Mr. IFATC controller, great job, man. I'm proud of you. Thanks. You're, you're, thanks doing fun- you're doing a phenomenal job. Uh, I'm going to take out that, um, I say, um, way too much. I know. We're not at Subway trying to order a sandwich. <laughs>